text for the message this morning is Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. We'll read those verses together. The past few weeks we've looked at Zephaniah chapter 1, in the first, uh, chapter 2 and the first part of Zephaniah 3. And under that command in verse 8, therefore wait for me, verse 9 continues, it's on page 790, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Zephaniah's prophecy speaks a lot about the judgment of the unfaithful Judah who had turned away from the Lord in the days of King Manasseh and Ammon, like we read in 2 Kings 23. Josiah's, King Josiah's reformation in the land would not stop the coming judgment of the Lord against Judah, and the Lord told that to his people. But his reformation did exemplify how God's wrath can lead sinners to the repentance, to, to the repentance just like Zephaniah prophesied could happen. Then in Zephaniah 3, verses 8 and 9, the Lord tells his people to wait for him in the midst of their persecution. Because, like we read in verse 8, not only did he plan to show his jealous love for the church by gathering nations to, uh, who were against him to now punish them, but also, we read in verse 9, because the Lord was going to cause many people to repent from their sins and turn to him. Although that tension between the coming judgment and the promised conversion of the nations is not explained in our text, so we don't know if people will be turning to the Lord while they are being punished or because they are seeing other nations being punished, God promised to gather a group, a church of faithful followers of Jesus Christ from among the nations who were condemned for their rebellion against God. This message of conversion in the midst of God's anger is the theme of Zephaniah's prophecy in our text today as the Lord points us to Christ who died on a cross to bear that punishment and that wrath that we deserved in order to save us from God's anger that we might convert and turn to him. And then Jesus rose from the dead with authority and he sent the church out to proclaim that gospel to all nations. And then the second part of our text today, verses 11 to 13, 
describe what kind of people will be gathered into the church that the Lord would rescue like a burning stick snatched from the burning fire of judgment. What do citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like? Well, our text tells us, using words that remind us of our Lord Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Zephaniah describes the characteristics of that Catholic, that universal church that Jesus delivers from the coming wrath. And we, who are privileged to be a part of this gracious work of God, we do well to pay attention to the attitudes the Lord describes that please Him, that really matter to the Lord, what really matters to the Lord. The Lord divides His announcement of that conversion of the nations in the face of judgment with three I will promises. You could see the three I will promises in verses 9 to 13 as he announces what he will do in the earth. And I preach to you this gospel under the theme, the Lord gathers his church from the midst of condemned nations. We'll see the three I will promises. I will purify their speech, remove the arrogant, and be with the humble. So when the Lord rises up, like we read in verse 8, to seize the prey and pour out his indignation against the sins of the earth, we read in verse 9, at that time he will change the speech of the people to a pure speech. The Lord is very clear in that statement that it is sinful for us to speak things that are unkind or disrespectful or impure or blasphemous. And since there is a close connection between what lives in our hearts and what we say with our mouths, as our Lord Jesus taught us as well, the Lord's promise in Zephaniah is pointing to a change of heart. A heart will be changed in the people's. Isaiah 6 helps us to understand what what it means to have our lips purified. In his vision of the Holy Lord in Isaiah 6, Isaiah was immediately aware that he was a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And he was in grave danger and, and he recognized that because of his speech and because of his blasphemy before the Lord in his life. And then we read in response, the Lord didn't say to Isaiah, Isaiah, don't worry about how you were speaking. That's not important. In fact, the Lord dealt with the problem of his unclean speech. And we read that an angel came and took a burning coal from the altar and touched it on Isaiah's lips to remove his impure speech. And that's a sign for us that this clarity, or this purifying of speech can only happen when our sins are atoned for. The burning coal from the altar points to the forgiveness of sins that we have in the cross of Jesus Christ. Today it's not a burning coal from the altar, but it is the flame of the Holy Spirit sent from the Savior who died on a cross, and it is through His powerful work in our hearts that believers begin to speak with pure speech. The great thing is that when someone begins speaking with pure speech, this is not just an indication that their guilt has been paid for and their debt canceled, but it also gives evidence that God is continuing to rule 
in their hearts. Pure speech is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that characterizes the members of the church that the Lord preserves in the midst of judgment. It's further described in, in our text as calling upon the name of the Lord, which is a description of, of the prayer and the worship that is offered to the Lord by those who depend on him completely. In Colossians 3, the Holy Spirit explains that when the word of Christ dwells in you and when he gives you wisdom, you will replace corrupting, obscene talk with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When God purifies our lips, we replace corrupting talk with talk that is as we read in Ephesians 4, verse 29, is good for building others up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so we see the, the very practical results of this conversion that God promised of the nations and how we also are called to serve the Lord with pure lips. The, psalm go, or the prophecy goes on to say with this change, God's people will serve him with one accord. It's the end of verse 9. And the original language says the people will serve him with one shoulder, which points to that picture of everyone standing beside one another, shoulder to shoulder, to pray to God while sharing the weight of the burdens of the people around us. The Lord works amazing things into the hearts of the people he, he converts, he changes, he, he calls to him so that not only do they speak differently, but they also speak differently together as the body of Christ. And through his prophet Zephaniah, the Lord promises to apply this work of God even to people who were formerly persecuting him. Zephaniah 2 verse 11 already spoke of that when it made a similar promise reveals that the conversion would take place among people who formerly had other gods. And then when we get to our text, we read of the daughter of my dispersed ones, my worshipers. And whether that phrase, the daughter of my dispersed one, is a reference to the nations in Genesis 10, the dispersed nations after Noah, uh, and, uh, after Noah and the flood, or whether it was speaking of the dispersed descendants of covenant children like Lot and Ishmael and Esau, who dispersed and left the side of the patriarchs, whether that daughter is a reference to the people of Judah who, who fled when their, the threat of Assyria and, and Babylon was coming and they fled to Egypt. The promise is that the Lord is gathering his church from, from all over the world, even beyond the rivers of Cush. And if you look at Zephaniah 2 verse 12, you'll see that Cush was among the nations that was to be punished. The Lord says even beyond his place of punishment, he would gather in his church. And then we see the amazing depth of the love of God reaching out to the very nations who were attacking him, who were worshiping other gods, and reaching out to them and changing their hearts. The verses we read in Isaiah 19 describes a similar result of God's awesome anger against Israel's enemies, Egypt and Assyria. And we stand amazed just to see that those once hostile enemies 
throughout the Old Testament described as a hostile force, now speaking pure speech, swearing allegiance to the Lord. The amazing grace of God toward persecutors, toward enemies, far exceeds our mercy to people who make our lives uncomfortable. You see the difference between the Lord's attitude toward even enemies and Jonah's attitude. You can think of how he was upset that the Lord was showing mercy to Nineveh. We see how the Lord treated the Apostle Paul, who was once a persecutor of the church, and calling him to himself. We praise God for sending his son into the world to, to bear all that wrath, even for persecutors. We who were formerly enemies of the Lord have been brought near by the grace of God. We see how the Lord also leads us to, to how to look at those who are attacking him or maybe making our lives uncomfortable. We're overwhelmed by the mercy of God. We too have been raised up from the ashes of judgment. God is gathering his church even from among the nations he will punish. And, and as we joyfully watch God at work in bringing the nations to himself, as we participate where we can with our, our gifts and our time, as we share the gospel in our city and the neighboring places around the world, we can be confident in the work he foretold so many years ago that that work will succeed. We can see the, the church rising up out of the judgment like, like a butterfly coming out of a, a cocoon. Although the Jews in Paul's days seemed surprised that Jesus had sent the apostles to all nations and that the Lord would want Gentiles, like, like most of us are, to be a part of his church, that conversion of the Ethiopian, sometimes called a Cushite, in Acts 8, wasn't something that should have surprised anyone. The acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles that included the conversion of Greeks and Romans and Canaanites and Cretans and many other people that we already sung about in Psalm 68 and Psalm 87 or that we sing about in Psalm 68 and, 60 and 87, the prophecy of Isaiah 11.1, 1, they, they all point to that stage of the church that we are living in right today. The root of Jesse, Jesus Christ, would be a signal or a banner that the nations would gather beneath. That's the time we're living in today. So what characterizes the church that is gathered on God's holy mountain under the banner or the flag of Christ Jesus, to use the words of Isaiah 11. Well, the first thing that our text tells us is that anyone who is arrogant will be removed. We see that in our second point. The you in Zephaniah 3 verse 11, now we move to the second part of our verse. The you in, in verse 11 is a reference to the city of Jerusalem as a whole, which is located on Mount Zion, which is often referred to as God's holy mountain because the temple on that mountain served as a doorway to heaven. The Lord met with his people. However, since our Lord Jesus fulfilled Jerusalem and the temple, 
God's holy mountain now refers to the place where God dwells by his spirit, which is the body of Christ, the, the church. We are, could say, God's holy mountain. And like the temple, the church is also directly united to God in heaven through Christ our head. We are that holy mountain that the Lord has promised to sanctify and purify. And so when the Lord promises in verse 11, on that day, the people who remain to serve the Lord on his holy mountain, they, they would not be put to shame because of the deeds by which they have rebelled against him. He's speaking to us. Zephaniah mentioned the people's sins to remind them that anything the Lord did for them was not because they had earned God's favor by their sinlessness. At the same time, the Lord promised that he himself would not hold their sins against them. The promise he gives to the church, he gathers. In the context of his coming judgment, he reminds his people of his mercy so that everyone might know it's not too late to change your life. It's not too late to turn to him with all your heart. That call going to the nations continues. That call coming to us, to our neighbors, continues. And when we turn to the Lord, we will find that he truly forgives sinners. Because of his, the death of his son, Jesus Christ, we, he removes their sins as far as the east is from the west. It's very important for us to remember when we think about our God, when we gather and worship, and when we feel ashamed over the things that we have said or done in the past. With God, we get a new start. When Christ is our Savior, the sins we have committed against the Lord are no longer testimony that leads to our condemnation, but rather they are a testimony of how gracious God is to undeserving sinners like us. God was willing to forgive the Israelites for their idolatry when they turned back to him like Josiah did when he purged the land of, of all those idols. God is willing to forgive you if you have done things against him or against your neighbor if you humble yourselves before him. The Lord explained that he will save Jerusalem from being put to shame by removing from their midst the proudly exultant ones. The people in Zephaniah's day would have understood this to be a reference to the people who were worshiping other gods and, and putting faithful followers of God to shame for their commitment to the one true God. The pride of arrogant people in the midst of the church, which leads them to mistreat their brothers and sisters, gives the church a bad reputation in the eyes of the people around the church who see this and then think that all Christians are, are hypocrites. They, they are a result of seeing the arrogance in the church is that they put the people of God to shame. And the only way to end the shame is to remove the proudly exalted ones from the midst of the church, which is exactly what the Lord promises to do. Discipline and excommunication have an important function in the church, not only to save the sinner from his, the, 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 the punishment for his arrogance before it's too late and judgment comes, but discipline and excommunication also confirm the holiness of, of God who dwells in our midst. 
It also protects the congregation from the negative consequences of harboring public or persistent sinners who are too proud to repent. And the Lord speaks of the discipline of his church. And it's noteworthy that the Lord says he will remove the proudly exultant ones in the midst of the church. He says, your proudly exultant ones. And he says that immediately after, he promised that our sinful deeds of rebellion in the past will no longer cause us to be put to shame. They'll be forgiven. And this shows us that the Lord only forgives our sins in Jesus Christ if we are not arrogant about them being proud like the nations around the church that we read about in chapter 2, verse 15, or shameless like the people in the church like we read about in 2, verse 1. A person cannot be arrogant and proud about their sins and repentant at the same time. Arrogance leads people who persist in their, uh, to persist in their sins, to refuse to accept correction, or seek reconciliation. If we're struggling with, with the sins in our lives, we, we need to pray to the Lord to take the arrogance out of our hearts. Falling into sins is one thing, but being arrogant about the sins you fall into will never bring you to the place of God's forgiveness that he has promised to broken and contrite hearts. As we read this, we ask that question, how do how are we responding to the sins that we see in our lives that we confess together like we did again this morning? Are we sad about our sins? Are we hating and fleeing from them? Do we confess them before the Lord with, with humble hearts? Or are we shameless and defensive and proud? It's striking that in Zephaniah 3 verse 11, after explaining that the proud, exultant ones will be removed, so all those very arrogant, persistent ones will be removed or excommunicated from his purified church, the Lord then turns his attention to the people left on his holy mountain, and he tells them that they too will no longer be haughty. The Lord knows very well how the church that he has chosen and gathered from out of the world can also grow haughty as they struggle with feelings of self-righteousness, like we see the Jews in the New Testament. Or when we hold on to grudges against people who have offended us, or we are unwilling to forgive as God has forgiven us. All signs of this pride, this proud and haughty, this pride and haughtiness. Even after we have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by the grace of God, we are not immune to the temptation of being haughty. Do you see that haughtiness in your own life? Perhaps when you think about how you look at people around you, how you categorize them. Maybe when you see someone who's ignorant about the Bible, somebody who has a different upbringing than you do, Maybe it's a brother or sister in the Lord, a member of this church. Do you see haughtiness in your life? And if you do, if you're seeing that right now, how do we respond to that? Feeling defensive, proud, too proud to repent 
and seek reconciliation? Or are we led by the Spirit to fight that haughtiness, to pray that the Spirit will help us to be humble? Well, the good news is that the Lord will be with the humble. When we looked at chapter 2 of Zephaniah's prophecy, we noted how the Lord spoke about a remnant of, the God, of God that God would preserve. God would preserve a remnant. Then using poetic and figurative language, the Lord promised that when the mighty cities were destroyed and, and those cities were lying in ruins with grass growing where, where there once were streets, the small group of the faithful who persevered through trials will be walking around taking care of their sheep in, in peace. After talking about removing the arrogance and the haughtiness from the place of his dwelling, from, from the people who are proud and exultant and, and the haughtiness that remains in our hearts. The Lord again speaks about the remnant he would not destroy in the great judgment. The, the leftover, the, the, the ones who remain are a people who are humble and lowly. Now the word humble in this context has a sense of people who are aware that they are in a needy condition. And the word lowly has the sense of people who are powerless because of their low status in society. The picture of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is a picture of people who have freed themselves from the slavery of, of power and wealth and status, being poor in spirit, who, who acknowledge with sincerity every time they gather and worship our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The humble and lowly do not deceive themselves about who they are. They do not have airs about their own success, but they seek refuge in the name of the Lord rather than in the opinions of others. Humble people acknowledge that when we are weak, God is strong. In the same way that arrogance leads you to persist in sins and rebellion, Humility leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ where there is forgiveness and renewal. We read that the citizens of the God's kingdom will do no injustice. That's in verse 13. They speak no lies, nor shall, their, their mouth, uh, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. These are characteristics of people who truly submit to the Lord's commandments who feel no need to receive praise for things they have not done. Zephaniah uses expansive language that describes the, the complete change that the Lord will work in the hearts of everyone who humbles himself before him and believes in him. At the same time as we read this, and, and we read no injustice and no lies or, or even a, a deceitful tongue in our hearts, we, we recognize that this is something we desire but not yet experience. We continue to struggle against these sins. And so part of our humility is seeking our righteousness in Jesus Christ. The prophet mentioned that in Zephaniah 2 verse 3. We saw that that command comes back. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It's a command to seek the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Only those who are united to Christ by faith with humble hearts can then share in his victory over God's punishment over sins. 
as the faithful were left in the land even after the judgment because they were humble and trusted in the Lord. And our Lord Jesus rose from the dead after he bore the God's wrath on the cross so everyone from every condemned nation in the world will escape God's wrath when they humble themselves before him in Jesus Christ and are led by the Spirit to obedience. The church that rises up out of the ashes of destruction and punishment for sin is a humble church that God makes into a new creation. And so Christian believers, they, they read text of prophecy like this and they strive to do no injustice, to hate injustice just like God hates injustice. We strive to speak truthfully even as the word of God is truthful. So the Lord points to a church, a church where the roaring lions and evening wolves are removed and all that is left in the land are sheep grazing and lying down. Sheep that feel safe enough to graze with their heads down, lie down on the grass without fear of attack. It's a description of the church that God protects. The faithful ones that God preserves through hardship will inherit the earth when there will be no more danger or evil. When we look at the picture, we say, what, a, what an amazing contrast between Zephaniah 1 and 2 and this picture here in Zephaniah 3 verse 13. The pounding drums of drama, the day of the Lord coming, repeated, repeated. And then that description of that dystopian destruction of God's enemies. And there's the church, including Jews and Gentiles, who humble themselves before the Lord together, shoulder to shoulder, finding peace in the victory of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful description of the consequences of the victory of Jesus Christ? None shall make those who find refuge in the sovereign Lord afraid ever again. Right now, we can already experience that peace. We could sing Psalm 131. Zephaniah calls us to trust in our Heavenly Father, to rest assured in the finished work of Jesus Christ, to keep in step with the Spirit in your thankfulness. And then as we see more next week, your rest, the peace of your loving Father's arms. Amen.